Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. If you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle, or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Funny Genius Foundation. Uh, today I have Chiara Marletto. She's a research fellow working at the physics department, a part of University of Oxford. And uh, within Wolfson, she's an active member of the Quantum Cluster and of the New Frontiers Quantum Hub. So we're going to talk about uh, her research, the quantum theory of computation. So Chiara, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you, Richard, for inviting me. Yeah, you know, I guess in plain speak, what's your research about? Uh, So my research is within the field of uh, quantum computation, but it's uh, actually looking at developing it further. So in a way, uh, quantum computing is this field that emerged in the 80s and has now become very established. um, And it's about trying to, on the one hand, understand from the theoretical point of view how a machine that uses quantum effects to work could possibly outperform the classical computers that we currently are using. And um, on the other hand, it's also about trying to build this machine, the universal quantum computer. And so it's also kind of an engineering enterprise. But my work is more on the theoretical side, and um, it's looking at developing a theory that goes beyond the quantum theory of computation and describes uh, machines that can be more general than computers. So they're not just capable of performing computations, but they can perform any physical transformation that is uh, allowed by a certain uh, law of physics. And these machines are called constructors, and they were introduced by John von Neumann, who is a mathematician and a physicist, back in the 50s. 
And since then, they had not been really developed. But I think now that we have the um, strong support of this uh, theory that we developed with the quantum theory computation, we can tackle this issue that von Neumann already pointed out then and try to really understand the foundations of these new generation of of, um, programmable machines. So that's the general context in which I'm working. So how many different methods are there to make a quantum computer? I've heard like there's like superconducting loops. And I mean, like what are the main methods by which people are trying to make quantum computers? Uh, So there are a number of them. I think the... um, there are different platforms that have been tried. I think there are, uh, as you said, superconducting qubits. There are um, a number of um, uh, other solid state implementations. And there are also technologies that mix various different variety of these platforms. And I think the, the main, the key thing that makes them all similar in one way is that they're all trying to implement this uh, general scheme that was proposed, as I said, in the 80s, where the idea was that it didn't really... So at the time when, when this was proposed is that um, you know, it wouldn't really matter what particular platform one were to choose. What mattered is that the, the key idea there was the fact that you know, all of these different ways of realizing a qubit, which is like the basic unit of quantum information are all the same uh, from the theoretical point of view because they all have the same computational power. Now, of course, this was the theoretical way of describing things. And, you know, that was very interesting from the foundation's point of view, from, you know, the, the idea of understanding better how quantum theory can power quantum computation and so on. But then when it came to actually realizing these various algorithms that were proposed and then trying to realize the ultimate goal, which is this universal quantum computer, it became clear that uh, some of these platforms are actually better than others. And I think currently there are a number of these that are being tried. Um, And some of the companies that are developing these technologies are actually uh, also very secretive about it. So we don't know all the details in a sense. There are also universities that are trying to develop some maybe smaller scale quantum computers. And so there is a, a kind of worldwide effort uh, towards, you know, delivering this this uh, holy grail of the universal quantum computer. And my yeah. understanding is that a number of these possible implementations will actually ultimately work. Well, what are some of the difficulties with quantum computing? You know, I've heard there's a lot of there's noise, there's errors, there's they have to be run, you know, extremely cold. Like, what are the various factors that go into making a quantum computer or qubits that work? And what are the, some of the challenges? Yes, so I think, so again, from from the point of view of the implementation, there are some very subtle details that, you know, only engineers and physicists that are working exactly on the implementation would know about. But in general, I think the the main difficulty, as you said, is is the is the noise. So you have to understand that the the fact that the qubit can perform a computation in the way that's required is not uh, so it's on paper can can look very simple but actually when it comes to to making sure that even a single qubit performs a computation in a in an accurate way one has to make sure that uh, it's isolated from a number of potential 
noise sources that exist in the environment. And the thing gets worse when, of course, we have uh, a number of these qubits. Um, and, you know, currently, I think there is this magic number that's been mentioned a number of times, so there's 50 qubits that can currently work currently in some, in some of these quantum computing platforms. So 50 sounds like a, a very small number of qubits if you compare it to the number of bits that, that are available inside classical computers. And the problem with noise is that it becomes worse and worse as you add more and more qubits. So I think that's one major challenge is to implement error correction on a number of qubits that are implementing a quantum computation. And this means to counteract the noise or to also isolate the qubits in such a way that the noise is reduced. And I think there are a number of ways in which this can be done. I think engineers are really trying to implement a number of different ways of, of approaching this, this problem. But well, do, you, uh, do you have to isolate each qubit alone or... Is there a certain number of qubits that you can group together, but beyond that, some certain number you can't? Yes, I think it, it, the idea is that you have to do it collectively because ultimately to uh, encode enough information uh, in order to perform a computation that can, for example, implement uh, certain algorithms to, yeah, for example, to factor a number, uh, you do need sufficient number of, of qubits. And then you would want to isolate all of them in a way from, uh, from the environment. And the, the, the trick there is that either you can, so the first thing to do is really to reduce the noise as much as you can, but then there are also techniques of error correction that are designed in order to correct the uh, computation once it's performed. And the error could be either in the, in the way the qubits are prepared or in the, um, in the way the computation is implemented on these qubits. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And so uh, both the gates, so the the, op, the transformations that, the, that perform the specific computation um, are corrected or and or the, the qubits that are kind of... Um, provided as input to the, to the quantum computer. So I think there are difficulties in, in, in both these, these places. How sensitive is uh, the environment of a quantum computer? Again, so as far as I know, they have to be extremely cold. How cold is it? If there's a passing truck nearby outside the lab, you know, or a train or stray electro, electrical equipment, like how sensitive are these systems? How isolated do they have to be? Again, I think this depends on the particular implementation, and you you know you can you can ask about these details to to people who are actually working directly on on these apply ap applications in a way. But I think the in general the the sensitivity is is very high. I mean, if you if you think even just there are some uh, labs where people are trying to make certain 
objects behave in a quantum mechanical way, not many of them, just a single molecule, for example. Um, and I think even there, there has to be a kind of a huge amount of, of, um, of isolation. So in this sense, I think the, this is why this technology um, is not ready to be made uh, in, into a commercial form because it really requires still a number of, um, of devices that are really only uh, existing within the uh, you know, specialized labs. So, so in this sense, I think, um, you know, we're not yet at the, at the moment where things are portable. If we're talking about quantum computer with a range of, of possibilities, but, you know, we are trying to get there. And again, there's also the fact that most of these companies are currently uh, running, you know, racing towards getting better and better special purpose quantum computers and ultimately a universal quantum computer. Some of these companies are actually working in a, in a kind of very, uh, secretive way so you know at some point we might be surprised and they might come up with something uh, really cool but on the, in the theoretical angle what are you working on specifically what are you trying to understand and model so as i said my my interest is in understanding what uh, happens next so the theory of quantum computation is based on the fact that there are a number of interactions in the universe that are ruled by quantum theory and the, the idea here is to uh, try to imagine what would happen to the whole of the idea of the quantum computer if quantum theory turned out to be modified or changed. Uh, so, you know, you have to think quantum theory is, is this explanation that was proposed almost a century ago uh, to explain uh, microscopic systems and the way they behave in a way that's better than what, say, Newton's laws uh, did. Um, and... and um, the, the theory has turned out to be very useful for computations. However, uh, we know that the quantum theory will have to change because uh, it's not compatible with the other most fundamental explanation that we have, which is general relativity. And we, we've had these two theories for now uh, about a century, and um, they work very well in their respective domains. But when you have to put, you put them together, you see a number of clashes. And so... My, my work is into thinking uh, what would happen, you know, to the theory of quantum computation if we were to remove some of the properties of quantum theory, imagining a potential successor of quantum theory. So is there a way of... If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Preserving all of these features of, say, the universal quantum computer, even if you don't have the whole of quantum theory at your disposal. Uh, and so this is what constructor theory, which is this generalization of the quantum theory computation I'm working on, is, is all about. And it's also about this other way in which you can generalize the quantum theory computation because it's uh, kind of studying the uh, next generation of computing machines uh, that can come after the universal quantum computer, which are these constructors that I mentioned earlier. So I think what, that's... What does that mean? What are, what are the constructors like? Can you explain the theory a little bit? Yes. So a constructor is a, a generalization of, of a computer. So in a computer is, is an object that can be programmed to perform computations that are allowed by, by the laws of physics. And we have a classical computer, a classical Turing machine, and then we have a quantum Turing machine and so on. Now, there are other types of transformations that uh, a programmable machine can perform. 
And uh, for example, you can think of thermodynamic transformations. Uh, so for example, cooling a kind of uh, coke from one temperature to another temperature, or uh, you can think of a, a, a chemical reaction, or you can think of, for example, the task of self-reproducing, uh, which is a, a task that is chief for biological systems. So a cell is capable of self-reproduction and so on. And while uh, a computer can simulate these behaviors but can't um, directly perform these tasks, a constructor can be programmed to perform a range of these tasks. And the universal constructor, just like the universal computer, is a, is a, is a constructor that can uh, perform all tasks that are physically allowed. And the reason why von Neumann proposed it and, and suggested that these machines should exist is that he had noticed that the universal computer, the universal Turing machine, was lacking the ability of performing some of these more general tasks such as, for example, self-reproduction. And for Norman wanted something that could emulate fully, for example, the ability of a living uh, being. And so the universal constructor should, among other things, being, be capable of performing that. So the, the theory I'm developing is both a generalization of the quantum theory of computation, both in the sense that it kind of underlies constructors. So it should, it should help us understand how they work and how to program them and how to ultimately build uh, the universal constructor. And at the same time, it's also looking to trying to remove some of the assumptions in the quantum theory computation so that it doesn't uh, rely anymore so heavily on quantum theory because this theory may at some point stop applying. So this is the, the, the kind of focus of my, my current research. Okay. I mean, if quantum computers are so sensitive, then how are we ever supposed to make them where they're robust enough that they you know, they replicate themselves or they take on all these additional functionality. I mean, it seems like impossible just to get them to work in any hospitable environment or, you know, in the absence of massive shielding right now. Oh, yes. This is very far in the future, technologically speaking. I think, you know, as I said, so the, the idea of the universal quantum computer was proposing the 80s and you know, down the line, we, we are a few years down the line then, from, since then, and I think we are still kind of trying to build this, this machine. So in a, from a technological point of view, these things take a lot of time. And so in, in some sense, this type of development I'm looking at is preparing the ground for the technology of, uh, you know, maybe our future in 50 years or, or more. And I think this is what theoretical physics uh, really is about in the sense that the, you know, for example, when Turing invented his scheme for a Turing machine, he couldn't foresee that this would then lead to, for example, the introduction of uh, personal computers and, and the, the computers that we use currently um, nowadays. Uh, and then all of the IT revolution came with that uh, because he was really, and he wasn't interested in trying to develop that at the time. He, he was really into understanding the foundations of computation and so on. So I think the kind of research that I'm doing and the kind of research that also led to, for example, the theory of computation in the first place, wasn't immediately directed to applications, uh, although actually they ended up uh, coming out of it. It's more directed towards understanding the foundations of, for example, in this case, uh, quantum theory, or in the case of Turing, it was the theory of computation. In the case of Phenomenon was understanding the foundations of how 
you know, life works and how programmable machines in general works and what, you know, their existence means for the regularities that we have in nature, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the, the focus that I have is very theoretical and more directed towards foundations rather than um, technology. But in this, I think in a way there's an interesting interplay here between the very theoretical abstract research and then what can come out of it in terms of technological developments a few years down the line. Are you privy to any of the quantum computing methods that uh, seem to be working the best right now? I know there's a lot of hidden stuff, but uh, you know, from what you observed, which type of quantum computer seems to be the most uh, workable or likely to be commercialized? I mean, there are a number of things that you use in, in um, theoretical physics research. And so there are qubits that you can realize in laboratories inside universities. For example, here at Oxford, there are a number of such qubits. So there are NMR qubits, there are uh, superconducting qubits, cold atoms, and so on. Um, but I think the, you know, what, which one of these actually works best and why for the specific uh, purpose of creating a commercializable universal quantum computer, it's, it's a question for, you know, for, for those people who are actually working on building one of these things. And, you know, I, I can speculate, but I think it's, it's maybe best that they give you an answer. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Chiara, what's the best way for people to see more about your work? Where can they go? I think we have, so there is a, a website, constructorthere.org, and uh, there is a book, uh, which is kind of just come out last week in the UK and the US, I think, entitled The Science of Ken and Kant, where I'm describing these developments beyond quantum uh, computation. And uh, lots of talks and interviews on the internet, I think, uh, that you can find by Googling my name. Okay, very good. Well, Chiara, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, great talking. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.